This is a special episode of the Immunology Podcast, IUIS 2023, Day 5, The Last Day. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. Today, we're back with our final episode from IUIS 2023 in Cape Town, South Africa. We'll be discussing highlights and sharing our thoughts on how it all went. If you're tuning in for the first time, be sure to visit www.immunologypodcast.com or your favorite podcast app to check out our episodes covering the first four days of the meeting. We're going to kick things off in just a minute, but before we get to that... Join us for a live webinar on January 23, 2024, to learn more about the most recent advances in CRISPR genome editing of primary cells. Dr. Zhen Zhang from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania will present his findings on the development and application of an engineered peptide-assisted genome editing CRISPR-Cas system for efficient editing of primary cells. To register for the webinar, please visit www.stemcell.com forward slash dr zhang webinar pen at it again wow I'm, I'm signing up for this for sure well you know what i'm signing up for too the last day of ios 2023 is it yes we've reached the end we're done stick a fork in us yeah does that an expression in, in any of your other languages in no. english it's like stick a fork in me i'm done uh, no 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 that you don't have that, that disturbing so. so, yeah, well, we are both here ready. Jason is rocking an immunology podcast t-shirt. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to, we're going to have to do a twinsy picture after this and put it on the socials. Definitely. Definitely. All right. How was the morning uh, keynote? Oh, it's really good. We had uh, Timothy Springer from Harvard Medical School. He is, of course, an uh, institution when it comes to understanding integrants. And he gave a... Uh, I think it's been a kind of a theme for, for the keynote speakers, kind of a lecture on the discovery of, of, of integrins and the role he and his lab played in it. Um, he showed know, his own pioneering work, identifying LFA1 as important for the immune synapse and many others, many other contributions of his lab and other people are kind of build up on our understanding of uh, integrins. And he finished up with a really cool um, data, single molecule um, uh, analysis that really shows the um, the mechanism of activation of integrins at a molecular level. And he came around, come, came about this under uh, kind of saying it's important for integrins they that they increase the the this kind of the intensity of the immune synapses that contributes to the recognition but they mustn't sacrifice specificity. And that's kind of an important concept to keep in mind when, when talking about these molecules. And this is in a way solved, the way that nature solved this is by having these different uh, conformations of integrins that get activated only when they're accompanied, for example, by TCR stimulation. So therefore, um, this, there's these, these different conformations and he shows a lot of kind of single cell data, a lot of uh, really cool, um, analysis uh, of how do we understand this um, dynamic to work. And he, he finished the, the talk with a video of some kind of, uh, of uh, contemporary dancers interpreting how uh, integrins work. And it was really cool to see. I wish I had uh, like filmed the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, so really, really nice talk. Uh, I have to say, I don't think about integrins often enough. So I really like, I really appreciated the overview. But I, I think about integrins a lot because I have anti integrins coursing through my blood on a there daily basis. Yeah. So 
but they're near and dear to my heart because I don't have a good relationship with my integrants. Well, he did mention, you know, he showed how much of a therapeutic targets they can be. Oh, and Tivio is a yeah. fabulous drug. All okay. right. Well, I went to a talk on immune regulation, which is really a talk about stat, multiple talks about stat three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So some, sometimes there's a theme that subdevelops in the, yeah. that you don't realize on the, the title of the session. So I had first up was Mohammed Rida Barbouche from mm -hmm. Bahrain. He really demonstrated that. So what was interesting about this, they were using a lot of human clinical data. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of STAT3 related inborn errors immunity that are known in the West. But he found one that was actually more common that's PGM3 deficiency and more common than STAT3 deficiencies, but has similar phenotypes. Mm -hmm. And he was able to establish that it has impaired signaling through GP130 glycosylation deficits, and that this then signaling deficit and has this IL6 signaling deficit, which leads to an IL21 deficit production, uh, this weird IL21 production upregulation of IgE class switching. And so it was just interesting that they, in this other cohort, of people, you had a different gene signal than you'd usually anticipate that provided a lot of learning. And then Cindy Ma came on and talked about the role of STAT3 in human immunity and talking about, you know, there's lots of these inborn errors and there's this hyper IgE syndrome, which can be autosomal dominant or receptive. Autosomal dominant is known by caused by STAT3 hyperactivation. And so what happens is there's this B cell extrinsic deficit due to T follicular helper formation, but a B memory B cell intrinsic in STAT3, but notably not STAT1s required for the memory B cell function for IgA and IgG secretion. And again, this is an IL-21 mediated process like the story uh, from Muhammad's lab. And so there was a little bit of a review of some kind of current level work on STAT3 hyperimmunity dysregulations in immune system, not so much, you know, chronic immune deficiency, but hyperactive systems that are based on least and lot by STAT3 being screwed up. So that was my first talk. Okay. I went for the morning session. I went to this really nice um, reproductive immunity uh, talk. So it started with Dr. Rana Chakraborty from Mayo Clinic. And she uh, spoke about uh, the role of Hofbauer cells, which are kind of a, a, a placental, I think, uh, macrophages, and how they, talking about the, how sometimes they get infected with CMV and how CMV can potentially uh, increase susceptibility of these uh, cells also to HIV infection. And this can be a way of vertical transmission to, to fetus. And then after her, we had um, Melanie Conrad uh, from Charité. Uh, she was talking about so antibiotics. So I think the bulk of her work was about antibiotic uh, use in pregnancy. She also mentioned a little bit about so she had some analyses about depression in pregnancy and the COVID pandemic. I think I missed a little bit. I think the the theme was stress during pregnancy has has negative effects and. And her 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 um, kind of disease of, of model disease is asthma, and I think she wanted to kind of convey that stress with pregnancy can also uh, increase uh, things like asthma in the progeny. But I had, I kind of missed a little bit that part. But what I was very clear was very nice was uh, her work on the effect of antibiotic use in pregnancy. 
she had the systems in which she she had data on mice, pregnant mice treating vancomycin. Uh, she made the she also made the point that they were treating these mice daily, and and they had uh, figured out that by giving the vancomycin within a very kind of sugary syrup, the mice actually took it very uh, willingly. So I think I don't know if other people are struggling with getting their mice to get their antibiotics. She 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 was very pleased with herself and their system. Um, so she she had no she had data showing how dysbiosis caused by vancomycin. Um, shifted uh, ILC populations in the gut and activated, and this resulted in LPS translocation activation of TH17 and how this uh, resulted in asthma uh, and insensitivity in the lung of the pups. Uh, but I think what was also really cool is she, she talked about um, <laughs> the idea of like farm, like, uh, how can you prevent asthma? And she talked about, you know, farm, this idea that farm antigen exposure can help, like it's kind of a good thing. And so she was, they kind of pinned down on one particular strain of bacteria that uh, they show that it would generate uh, not infection necessarily had a model in which they were just uh, expo exposing the mothers with 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 dried bacteria uh, uh, products, and that uh, increased a production of IgG one, which uh, protected the the, the pups. Uh, so also really nice kind of some more direct uh, uh, evidence of, of the protective uh, capacity of certain bacterial strains. And the session was finished by Tamara Tilbergs from the University of Cincinnati, uh, who did really nice session about me mechanisms of, of tolerance of fetus. Uh, she particularly honed in uh, expression of HLA-C and HLA-G on trophoblasts, which are not found in mice, so it's really hard to model this in mouse. Uh, but how this, uh, these cells uh, can use a T-Rex that protect the fetus. She did some, you know, she showed some, some more mechanistic data, and she also talked about subsets, specific subsets of, of CD8 T-cells in the decidua. Uh, the, the the uh, so overall tolerance and while, like how you get tolerance while still protecting the, the fetus from infection. Uh, really, I think it's such an important uh, type of work. Well, I kind of tie in a little with my next one, which was on mucosal immunology, but had a lot of uh, fetal work in it. So there was a really cool talk by Tim Hand. And he starts by recapitulating some things that are they're well known if you're a microbiome nerd, which is early microbiome disruptions in infants and children can lead to disease, antibiotics in the mother or the baby at birth or young age. One of these is necrotizing enterocolitis, which is super terribly bad, can lead in pre, happens in premature infants, can lead to intestinal resection and death. It's super bad. Um, and intestinal resection can have problems later in life. Um, what's known is that bifidobacter and clostridia uh, take longer to engraft preterm in people that are premature and also the body can't uh, hand but the body also because the gut isn't mature enough yet it doesn't respond properly to those when they start coming in and so that's a dual-edged issue so just giving babies bifido and clostridia may not be okay because what they start out with is enterobacter right um, and so the maternal iga is important for preventing neck and that's also known and so they were able to start doing some maternal iga studies through through donor milk and other things and they found that milk that could prevent neck was better at binding IgA. And they also found that mother's uh, properties of their milk doesn't really change over time, at least during the, the time course. So if you have whatever's in your milk is going to be in your milk, and so you're either a good responder or, 
or not. It doesn't matter if your kid has something going on or next pregnancy, it just persists. So kind of your phenotype for producing what you IGA you produce, it seems pretty locked, which was interesting. Um, they also demonstrated that then they did a really cool study where they crossed IGA knockout mice to wild type mice. And so the pups always were IGA competent, but then you would either have a mother or father who couldn't produce IGA. So if the mom couldn't produce IGA, right, during weaning, you have no IGA in your milk. So it's a really good controlled experiment. And they demonstrated that um, IGA in the milk regulates intestinal epithelium prior to weaning and leads to early maturation and secretory lineages. And if you could transfer the microbiota in the knockouts, the knockout transfer, so, so knockouts led to earlier secretory lineage maturation, right? Because they're like, the intestine has to deal with this bacteria not coated in IgA anymore. And then that has this ILTH17 response type, phenotype to it with these ROR gamma T cells and transfer the microbiota from one side to the other will induce this phenotype. And then furthermore, these ROR gamma T cells persist into adulthood since so they can find it way later. And they have very modest effects, but they could take these pups that were from IgA negative moms. They have worse endomethacin colitis as a result. Not a ton worse, but a little worse. And more IL-17, but P was only 0.06. But the point is, this is an effect in an adult that was based on what they had as breast milk as a baby. Wow. Nothing's changed since that, right? They're, they're, they're IgA competent. They have no genetic issues because they're haplotype, you know, they're plus minus, so they can make IgA, they're seeing this effect. Um, so this is really cool. They're trying to figure out how to start making this into some type of therapeutic, but there's a lot of work to do because making monoclonals to IgA is hard. And then another paper, another person, this is early investigator award was Roland Ruscher, who was looking at um, mechanisms to deal with pediatric and adult onset colitis. And they couldn't talk a lot about it because they're working with a company called Macrobiome Therapeutics. But essentially, that company synthesized a hookworm-derived recombinant protein, and hookworms generate tolerance. And that's thought to be, and we know that people with hookworms have less inflammatory bowel disease. And so they're applying that at least in mouse models, and it makes the IBD go away All right. in the mouse models. So that they're working on that. And that's what I got. Okay. Well... For the last keynote of the conference, uh, we had Sarah Gilbert from University of um, Oxford, who is uh, was she she is very well known for spearing the effort uh, of the vaccine, the COVID vaccine that University of Oxford made this uh, adenoviral vector vaccine, and so she talked about. Um, Really, I mean, she clearly has been involved in this for many, many years. It was such a nice, such an inspiring talk um, about, well, what it takes to make, to test, and to distribute uh, these vaccines against, you know, pandemic. This, well, she talks more about epidemic uh, diseases or emerging diseases. She started her uh, keynote talking about her experience trying to test Uh, vaccine against Ebola in uh, during the 2014 outbreak and I thought what she you know was very keen on on, on, sh on showing is that uh, although they had the vaccine um, they took so long to come up with the right ethical way of testing it in the field that it took four months for the clinical trial to be approved and the design to be approved and by that time the peak of the of the epidemic was over. So she she really kind of wants to bring home the message that we need to figure these things out before we need them. And I think that was an overarching topic, uh, a theme in her presentation. 
So that's really interesting because at least in cancer trials now, right, if you're going to die from the cancer, the threshold for the trial has to be, is it less likely to kill you than the cancer? Well, but for the Ebola, because you could consider that it was unethical not to vaccinate everyone just in case. So that's basically they did. They had two. But how if you vaccinate everyone, there's no comparison that you can do. So what they did is that they compared two groups. They uh, were in a way divided in a group that got vaccinated now and a group that got vaccinated in three months. I don't know exactly how that division was hmm. made, but there were basically two comparisons. The word, and you could see where there was if, if the vaccine was good enough, you would have, you will see that in the. That, that, that's in, interesting. I mean, I could also argue just vaccinate everyone because Ebola is almost universally lethal, and so. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. It's interesting. Uh, so, and then she continued. She, she talked about, you know, mentioned other kind of epidemic viruses, Nipah, Hendra virus, Lassophira virus, how different approaches to different viruses. Uh, and then she also talked extensively about her experience bringing over these, the, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, uh, how uh, important it was to design, you know, all the details in the vaccine. She talked about starting from the from the. Uh, sequence design uh, going over to uh, to the the how they decided upon the amount of doses and how they managed the the the, the time between doses, um, how they initially wanted four weeks, but then because of the availability of the vaccine and for a public health reason, they extended to about twelve weeks, and that actually ended up being better at protection. I, uh, after the two the two uh, this is of course the the. AstraZeneca, so they teamed up with AstraZeneca for making this vaccine. So this is the, the Oxford AstraZeneca um, chimpanzee adenoviral vector uh, vaccine. Yeah. And yeah, so she, she talked about that and uh, and how important it is to, to really have these things planned out. And of course, her experience, you know, <laughs> speaks volumes about this. Yeah. I never understood why it was four weeks for COVID to begin with, because you usually almost never do vaccines four weeks apart, even for respiratory. And respiratory stuff usually have a month or two of protection. I think it so. was the, the, I think it was just to give the shortest time possible for people to have the two back, the two doses that were considered protective. And that was the, the shortest thing that made sense. Yeah, okay. So if you're going to for as close results, together as possible, four weeks is the answer. Get results <laughs> yeah. as quickly as possible. Yeah. But then a lot of people got vaccinated longer than that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I just want to make a quick, um, before we, we leave for today, Yesterday was Diane Mathis' presentation. She won the Menarini Prize for for outstanding woman immunologist, and she's really well known in the in in, in the field of of, of immune regulation. She uh, her team discovered the role of air in uh, the antigen presentation in the thymus. So you know, big big uh, very important discovery. Uh, so and also a lot of other things. Uh, visceral adipose tissue T-Rex were also uh, discovered in her lab and that opened you know, floodgates to a lot of things. And she has a lot of research. So I just want to say you know, it was really nice. Her presentation was mostly about her, the, the, the most, her most important contribution or her more surprising contributions, I guess. Um, but yeah, congratulations to Diane Mattis on that. That was cool to see. And oh. you know what today I did? I signed my first autograph. Can you believe that? What? I signed an autograph on the back of a 50 rand uh, banknote. Is, is that a crime in the uh, in the? Uh, I don't I don't know. You can, about uh, <laughs> about two and a half two and a half dollars. Uh, so uh, if you're listening, Casper from Berlin, your colleague it will bring you uh, that uh, that banknote. Hopefully, when he comes back. There you go. Well, there, <laughs> dang. 
All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our IUIS 2023 episode series. We've met a lot of people and had a lot of fun. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or X or whatever it's called at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com. See you next time.